0: Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger.
1: Much like uh, someone trying to use the metaverse right now, I'm acutely aware of my legs on this podcast. A recent prank or a joke that my friends have been making is anytime I go to their house, they'll have the video of the podcast up on the TV, which is. I can't tell you how horrific that is for me to see. I have no interest in ever.
0: What does that have to do with your legs?
1: Well, what <laughs> the table, right? Our very cool custom Winged Wheel Podcast table. Thank you, Rdwoodworking.ca. Um, it has a the clear plexiglass part where it's the Red Wings logo.
0: Yeah, you can't really see your legs. Oh,
1: you can see on the screen. You didn't I didn't think I could see my legs, but you can see the legs. And so often I'll wear shorts because it gets warm in here sometimes and it just looks like I'm not wearing any pants.
0: <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do, man. On the
1: podcast. And of all of us to not have pants on, everyone expected it to be you.
0: Uh, if you ever look at those YouTube videos, they add 20 pounds. Oh, I yeah. look massive.
1: Oh yeah. You look like the milk bag you profess to be.
0: Yeah. That's why we're here not on the ice.
1: Well, Brad always is in athletic gear and I think he's just rubbing it in our faces.
0: I'm just happy I put on joggers today. Usually, I'm, I stay in my pajamas. That's an overtime-related <laughs> material.
1: All right, folks. Before we get into everything, uh, welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk to you about all things Detroit Red Wings hockey, the world of the NHL, the Department of Player Safety's stuck wheel of discipline, and uh, everything else. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco, and I'm Evan. On this episode of the Winged Wheel podcast, we are going to talk about the Red Wings game that happened uh, since last episode. It was a 3-2 shootout loss to the Montreal Canadiens with some notable storylines in there. First, uh, the flip of the script, flip of the script, uh, I should say, against the Red Wings, a terrible hit from Uri Slavkovsky on Matt Luff, and uh, the resulting suspension. We have some feelings about the suspension and how it aligns with other... Uh, suspensions that have happened. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, some other Red Wings news. Important players returning. Tyler Bertuzzi's name is popping up again, which is good. Uh, we'll get into all of that, how this affects the Bergens of the world. And then we're going to get into an interview with Kevin Woodley of In Goal Magazine, writes for the Canucks and is a one of the foremost uh, hockey experts in uh, the NHL media world. So really, really excited to finally get Kevin on the show. Uh, the insight he brings into the world of goaltending illuminates how little people generally know, myself included, but it was uh, really, really informative. I think you're gonna like it. Uh, We'll get into whatever other NHL news there might be before jumping into overtime. Before we do that, I wanna let you know, Thursday, December 1st at Motor City Casino uh, is Hot Stove Stories with Ken and Mick. It is an extremely, extremely exciting event. Uh, it is going to feature NHL le- NHL legends like Chris Draper and Chris Osgood, uh, as well as refereeing legends, Dan O'Halloran and Wes McCauley. Uh, I'll be there uh, as well, just to play referee a little bit, so to speak. There are going to be stories. There's going to be uh, banter and conversation. Anytime you know Mick is there with the referees, it's going to be a good time. And uh, there's going to be a Q&A period as well for those who attend. So if you've ever wanted to ask any of those uh, hockey legends anything, that's your opportunity. Uh, It's at Motor City Casino. It's been moved uh, to 8 to 10 a.m., so it's a breakfast event. Uh, Breakfast will obviously be served. There's going to be a live auction with some really, really great items there as well as a silent auction that starts a couple weeks prior. We really want to fill that room. So if you're interested, uh, we highly encourage all proceeds benefit the Jamie Daniels Foundation. So go to jamiedanielsfoundation.org to get your tickets and find out more. I hope to see all of you there. Okay. Wow, a game that the Detroit Red Wings played where uh, one team generally dominated play, another team was kept in it by a goaltender. They scraped by until it came to a deciding moment. They made fewer mistakes and converted on their opportunities and uh, the team that kind of got outplayed won. And this time, not Detroit. The Montreal Canadiens prevailed three to two in a shootout win over the Red Wings in a uh, a kind of a funny game. And Brad, we were talking before the podcast, I think it was just last episode, you were talking about balance. And this is how it shakes out over the course of a
2: season. Yep. Don't feel guilty when you have a win you don't deserve because for every time that happens, this is going to happen. So it's all about balance. The Wings should have won. Jake Allen had a phenomenal game. The Red Wings, you know, did well to get the third period goal from Lucas Raymond to scrape together a point. And let's be honest, shootouts have never been the Red Wings' friend, at least not in a long time. So here we are. So the
1: progression of the game was pretty funny, actually. Um, first, what they did is it was a start by talking about Ville uh, Huso and how great he was coming in. So he's 5-1-1. 1.86 goals against average, 9.41 save percentage, and two shutouts. And not that I think the goals were necessarily all on him, but it was essentially the same goal twice. Not one after the other. Uh, they happened at either end of the first period, but Mike Hoffman picked up a pretty juicy rebound uh, from Vili Huso's left side, that went out to Vili Huso's left side with one of Mata Horonic defending. Both of them were on the ice for both goals, and he buried it. Huso had no chance off that rebound. He had to move laterally too much and, and was just at a, not in the right place to make the save. Outside of that and outside of the shootout, I think Huso was great, but it's just those small moments that, that led to the loss. So, yeah, that the game opened up that way with that Hoffman uh, Hoffman goal. And actually, what have we been clamoring for when Dylan Larkin gets a breakaway and gets tripped up or slashed or impeded for so long, and it seems like it never happens. The penalty shot? The penalty shot. Dylan Larkin finally gets his penalty shot. (laughs) It did not go well. (laughs) It was such a quick translation from, they finally did it! They finally called the damn penalty shot. Even Mick was surprised on the broadcast. He's like, oh my god, where did they call this from? It must have happened early. The referee had decided right away that it was going to be a penalty shot. Pointed right away after the play was over. Gave Larkin the opportunity to shoot. And it was just so much excitement and Larkin was so clearly a guy who had 10 different moves in his mind coming in on the goalie, tried six of them at once, bobbled the puck, tried the other four, and it was just a disaster. And it was like, ah, God, that hurts all that buildup. And that's I get that. It's one play, but
3: that hurt.
2: Yeah. Well, the book on Larkin forever on breakaways or shootout was either backhand five hole or forehand. Over the pad blocker side. He must have had both of those in his mind. Yeah. It's, there was also some like weird like
1: Datsuk stuff going on where it almost he wanted to do the drag back and move to the side. And it's just one of those plays, you know, no one had to tell Larkin after. He probably is thinking about that right at this moment. And I doubt that he's going to make that same mistake again in terms of overcomplicating. It's just about getting the shot
2: off first and foremost. Generally, what happens in that situation where you where you, you see a guy almost calling an audible mid deek nine out of ten times, that's a guy comes in on a breakaway, shootout, whatever, penalty shot, and he's got a move in mind. Mm-hmm. But then he saves the way the goalie's positioned, and it's not ideal for what he wants to do. So then he tries to change it at the last second. And if you have something in your mind and you are setting up for that the whole way down, and then it comes to the moment of, y- even if the goal is separate, you almost have to go through with it because the alternative is that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So the uh, the Canadians actually entered the second period with a uh, two to one lead. Detroit split the Hoffman goals with an Austin Zarnik goal. It was his first goal with the Red Wings. Uh, Kubelik had a great pass. I think it was through Dvorak's feet where Dvorak was going down or the the Montreal defender was going down and Kubelik just kind of waited him out for that split second, demonstrated why Kubelik is an extremely effective player that Chicago should have never let go of, uh, found Zarnik who uh, buried it. And then it was really just kind of a dull game. Like the second period was this grindy game where, you know, if Detroit is the better of the two D. the two teams and they deploy a system where they clog up the neutral zone and Montreal's trying to play a bit of possession to kind of keep the puck away. It was essentially Detroit got their chances when they could. Uh, the power play looked really good at points. I felt they were generating generating some awesome chances. Doesn't matter in the end because they were zero and seven on the night. So that's a that's a killer right there. Doesn't matter how good you looked if you're converting zero for seven. That means you sucked uh, in the end. But. That leads into the main story of the night, which is Jake Allen was just phenomenal. Second time this season, he's done that in Detroit. He is good for at least a few of those a year against Detroit, I feel. I am always talking. I feel like I'm always thinking Jake Allen is such a severely underrated goalie in terms of how high he can elevate his game.
2: And then you watch him against any other team. Yeah. (laughs) No, he's not a bad goalie, but the two showings he's had in Detroit this year, he's not that guy. He's a good goalie, but he's not that good. Because well, the first randomly will break through and steal. That's yeah. Because what was what were the Red Wings out shooting Montreal in the first game? Uh, it was like almost forty to fifteen going into the third period or something insane like that, and it was Quite zero zero.
1: Yeah, he's keeping them in games. Yeah, uh, and I mean, if you don't want to be- get traded, man, he's he's going to play them out of bedard. <laughs> I hope so. That'd be funny. It's shades of Jonathan Bernier, right? Remember when Jonathan Bernier used to do this to people? I can think of a couple, like a Toronto game and uh, I want to say Pittsburgh game, but I remember opposing fans being like, since when can Jonathan Bernier do this? But just randomly will elevate his game to make, you know, 40 or however many saves. Um, So the, the Red Wings didn't break through at all in the second period. And it wasn't until halfway through the third, I really thought like, oh man, They are going to hold them to a two-one scrappy loss in regulation, and that's going to blow for the Red Wings. But uh, Lucas Raymond uh, finally broke through. Pew Suter found him in front. Raymond got not enough of a shot, uh, not enough stick on the shot, but it just kind of fluttered past uh, Jake Allen, who was kind of down in the butterfly or kind of down, was out of position to move over. As long as Raymond got something on it, it came through and you can tell how much that goal meant because he was amped up. Like his celebration was like he was tuned up for that one. And it felt relieving like, oh my God, all of that just for a drop of blood. But at least the Red Wings were able to bring it to overtime. But before overtime was a Slavkovsky hit. And my God, what has gotten into players this year? Montreal specifically seems to really like that spot of the ice. So I'm going to try to put this in a way where I don't sound like the Department of Player Safety describing it. Luff was, uh, through a series of events, uh, of the puck up, batted down, and he had to change direction. He was facing the boards directly, and it wasn't a last-minute turn. He was facing the boards for a few seconds there, trying to bat at a loose puck that everyone could see. Slavkovsky was trailing him the entire time, saw the numbers the entire time, and it, he didn't drill him the same way that Anderson drilled Petrangelo the other night, uh, but he still hit him from behind, face first into the boards, and it was scary. Like, Luff was bleeding from the face. Like, he was shaking, obviously really, really shaken up. uh, Left the game, and it was the most predictable five-minute major, plus a game misconduct for uh, Slavkowski, who was tossed. And the Red Wings got their five-minute power play. So, the hit itself is like, I get it. Slavkovsky's a young kid. It's his first year in the league. He plays a hard game. I don't really think he went in there trying to hurt Luff. Like it wasn't... I have a hard time comparing it to the Anderson hit, but at the same time, it it was an extremely stupid, avoidable hit. Like just did not need to happen at all.
2: This is the one I never understand as a hockey player because there are some things in minor hockey that they beat into your head from the moment you start playing. Don't hit a guy from behind is number one in minor hockey in a lot of um, centers, they put a, a literal stop sign on the collar of your jersey to get the message across. So if a kid can understand, don't hit a guy from behind into the boards. A grown NHLer who had two, three, four seconds to think about it, and two, three seconds in an NHL game is an eternity let's yeah. not let's not kid ourselves here. I don't care how hard he pushed him what he meant to do. Like, this is one of those instances, worst case scenario, he's an a-hole, like, trying to injure someone, or B, he's an idiot. There's no other option here. Those are the two options on these type of plays. Your, Your brain just stopped working, or... You tried to hurt a guy. There's no in between.
1: I think it's just one of those things where he was committing to the hit, and he just didn't use his brain. Yeah,
2: like I, I, yeah, I agree. That's the the yeah. likely scenario here because Slavkovsky has never struck me as the type of guy who would attempt to injure someone. The Josh Anderson on Petrangelo, that was a thousand percent. Anderson was trying to oh god get his was, piece. There. That was terrible. Yeah,
1: and he's going to learn his lesson with his two games off for sure.
2: Yeah, and um <laughs> because not only with the consistency of the Department of Player Safety, but even the stupid rules they lay out in front, the Anderson hit, I think everybody can agree, was significantly more malicious than the Slavkovsky hit. Petrangelo didn't get hurt. Luff did. Because, again, I went on the rant last time about why does that matter? The act and the intention is the same whether or not the one guy's body holds up better than the other, they end up with the same suspension. When, in my opinion, those plays aren't close. I I think, I don't think the mistake was made on Slavkovsky. Two games is very justified. I'll I'll argue again, the mistake was made on Anderson. But,
1: here we are. We'll get into the comparisons in a little bit. So the Red Wings had a five-minute power play, and immediately the thought was, you have a five-minute power play to close out the game, tied 2-2 against a team that you've been out playing. You need need to convert here. Not only do they not, but a couple minutes into it, Elmer Soderblom just takes a stupid penalty. Stops on the blue line to run a pick and like, look, whether it's a soft pick or a hard pick, you're six foot eight. You're six foot eight running a pick, you're going to send a guy It's like a
0: transport truck just stopping in the middle of the highway. Even if
1: it wasn't that big of an impact, any player with half a brain is going to sell the hell out of it. And I don't think the Montreal player had to. I think he actually did send him flying Even though those picks happen 20 times a game, if they're killing a major, the ref is going to call that penalty. It was just a rookie mistake by Soderblom. Took away two minutes of power play time. The Red Wings weren't able to do anything with the rest of it. They even had a power play uh, towards the end of of the three-on-three overtime. So it was a four-on-three and and nothing doing there. And it went into a shootout where ultimately Husso uh, wasn't at his best. Montreal shooters Nick Suzuki and the others really got him to bite drop his shoulder he was out of position and the Red Wings shooters only Perron was able to score against Jake Allen his former teammate and uh, the Red Wings ended up losing 3-2 and is it the end of the world that game no but it was a game where there is a series of moments to learn from like outside of the Slavkovsky hit which the Red Wings and fans are very justified justified in being upset about you know Larkin has a score on that power play or that penalty shot uh ronick and mata can't lose their assignments in the puck on the same goal twice Huso's rebound control wasn't the best that game which even though he he had i think a 939 save percentage the rest of the game um those are the two goals that mattered and then you can't be taking dumb mistakes to to burn yourself on a power play and you can't go over 0 for 7 on the power play on the night if you're going 0 for 7 on the power play you're likely not winning that hockey game it doesn't matter if you're playing yeah, the Montreal Canadiens or, or Brad's pickup hockey
2: team? The great teams in the NHL are consistent. We've talked at length about, not recently, but in the past, about how the gap between the 32nd place team and the 1st place team isn't as dramatic as you would think. Look at hell. Philadelphia is 7-3-1 right now. Any team in the NHL can beat any other team on any given day. The teams that win Cups the teams that win president's trophies are the teams that don't let too many opportunities slip a team like Boston, given a five minute power play at the end, six other power plays or however many it was a penalty shot. You think in a close game, they're converting on at least one of those. Yeah. I'd bet my house. They're converting on at least one of those. This is the difference. And this is the learning and growing pains for the Red Wings. They have to get to that point because yeah, these types of losses in isolation, who cares? Big deal. You played Montreal, you still got a point. It's fine. In the grand scheme, it's not a big deal. You can't have six of these in a year because that could be the difference between a playoff spot or not a playoff spot or a better matchup in the first round when you're more competing when you're competing for Cup, et cetera. Like they add up and they matter.
1: Yeah. If for Red Wings fans right now, this is very much like what you said, Brad. It is what it is. These games are gonna happen. You learn, and, and that's part of the the process. If you're like the Leafs or maybe a team that's underperforming, I don't know, Florida, whoever, uh, you're going to care a lot more about these. So, yeah, just what, how it is for the Red Wings, and they have to kind of pull it together for this game against what's going to be a very motivated New York Rangers on Thursday and then a West Coast road trip thereafter. But like you said, at least they walked away with a point. Let's talk about the suspension. So Slavkovsky hit. He got five in a game. He missed about 10 minutes of game time, so it's not like he got tossed in the first period. It was announced this morning that he'd have his review, and before this episode even started recording, it was announced that he would have a two-game suspension. The exact same suspension that Rasmussen got for his high stick on Krejci, the exact same suspension that Anderson got for his vicious hit from behind on
2: Petrangelo, where Petrangelo wasn't hurt, the exact same suspension Kuznetsov got for trying to break. Kuznetsov oh, no, got Kuznetsov one game, Kuznetsov yeah. got one, sorry. Kachuk got the two game for, for trying to gouge his uh, yeah. Kemper's eye out. Uh, Kaprizov got a fine last night for whacking
1: Dowdy in the face with what looked like a stick, but he might have been able to claim it was his glove. Um, I think the wheel that they use is stuck. I think that's what people have been joking about. It's just stuck on two games. The Rasmussen, The Rasmussen high stick. They cited the injury to Krejci where they didn't even, again, they didn't indicate where in the play that injury happened, and it wasn't to the head. So we don't know whether it was a result of the illegal action uh, that Krejci got injured, but they cited that in the suspension. And in everything else, they said he had no uh, history of fines. They had no history of suspensions regardless, but the injury is one of the things that elevated it to a two-game suspension. With the Slavkovsky hit, it was just some kind of like bizarro world video where they're talking about every single microsecond of the play leading up to it. And they're calling out all the things that we saw. Like, he saw the numbers. He, he hit from behind. He ran through them. Uh, Luff was hurt. Poor Luff, who just had 16 stitches, lost teeth, and finally took the face shield off. And this happens to him in his first, his first game after having the shield off. Luff was hurt. Luff left the game. Blah, blah, blah. And it caused an injury. And they give him the same suspension.
0: Guess he should have been David Krejci then.
1: Like I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist here, but Krejci missed a week. He missed a couple games. He was back for their their Toronto game a week and three days, a week and two days later. I think it was. He missed effectively a week of hockey. Matt Luff is going to be out for ten to twelve weeks. Call it three month, up to three months, and he's having surgery. Surgery as a result of the hit, and they gave him two games. And look, if this was the first thing that happened this season in the sequence of events and they're like, okay, this is two games, but then they gave Anderson one game and they gave Rasmussen a fine and things balanced out that way. I could live with this, but how, how do you work for the department of player safety and you look at that hit and you say, oh boy, that is the exact same thing. And that caused the exact same impact as what Michael Rasmussen did to David Krejci. They and they knew about the injury in time for the hearing. They the Red Wings very clearly disclosed that for good reason before the hearing and before the decision. And they looked at that and said, "Yeah, yeah, those two are the same thing."
0: Well, they didn't look at it.
1: Well, they they said he was injured. Like they no, called it no, in the video. They didn't
0: look at the Rasmussen one. They probably didn't even think about it.
1: Oh, Krejci's hurt. They
0: looked at the Anderson one that happened. I don't know, how, less than a week ago. <laughs> And that was it. I de- I would. I'll pull a, pull a Brad. I bet my house <laughs> that they did not look at the Rasmussen Krejci incident at all.
1: Which wing of your house? Because I, I know you have to.
0: I'll just say the whole house. You know, <laughs> oh this, is, this is the internet. We can be sensational.
2: It's S- here's the thing though, because Evan's right. I agree with Evan. They didn't look at the Rasmussen. It's not comparable at all. No, I'm being a crazy person. That's a reasonable take. I mean, you're
0: looking at like other suspensions. I totally get that.
2: The NHL, I disagree with how they, the criteria in which they determine suspensions. I disagree with where the wheel lands most of the time. But they've clearly said that injuries on a play matter. They don't seem and never have seemed to really care about the intent of the play, if you know what I mean by that, how malicious something was. Functionally, the Anderson hit and the Slavkovsky hit were the same thing. A hit from behind, into the bench, right in front of the dasher boards, numbers the whole way. Petrangelo wasn't hurt, Luff was. By the NHL's own definition of how they issue suspensions, And how the plays broke down, Slavkovsky should have got more. I disagree with that, but that's how they have their rules laid out. So not only can they not be consistent by common sense, they can't even be consistent by the own rules and guidelines they are supposed to abide by. Yeah, their internal logic disagrees with itself. Yeah.
1: In, In my and I know there's going to be disagreement on this. Here's what I, in my personal opinion, believe. I think Anderson should have got more games. Absolutely. Because I think the intent of that hit was gross. Like it was disgusting. And he is lucky, just so damn lucky that it didn't turn out worse than it did. Because it, by all rights, if you run that hit 10 times, nine other times, Petrangelo is hurt and seriously. His face hit off the Dasher. He's lucky that wasn't another Draper situation. I also think uh, Slavkovsky should have had more. I will stand I, I will stand by, yeah, don't use your stick as a weapon, so give Kuznetsov, Rasmussen and Capriceoff the same thing, whatever you want, call it a game. Two games if you're really that passionate. whatever standard you want to set there, but no matter what I the 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 dangerousness and the unnecessary aspect of the two hits from behind is, I, I would elevate those suspensions in my mind. I'm not calling for 15, 20 games. I just don't see how that you call that two and not even three or four or five at most.
2: When was the last time a player got suspended and uh, people's reaction was, oh, wow, that's too long. (sighs) It's funny because it's almost like,
1: like through all of this shock, I actually think they're getting closer to the mark. My actual first thought when this suspension came out was, you know what, at least it's something. Because how many times have we seen them only give a fine, right?
2: Yeah, but that's putting it up against the bar that is literally subterranean. Oh, as usual for the NHL, the bar is on the floor. It's not even on the floor. That's
1: it's, too generous for them. It's the minimum sufficient standard.
0: It is the away uh, locker room at mallet Arena.
1: <laughs> it's the away locker room at the Sabres Arena where they have goats.
0: I is I would it, go there.
1: Well, you <laughs> would go there while the goats are there. Maybe not after.
0: No, maybe not.
1: We're not going to sit here and whine about Slavkovsky only missing two games. I think Slavkovsky is going to learn a lesson. I mean, we kind of are. <laughs> no, no, Sorry. <laughs> we're not going to sit here and whine about Slavkovsky only getting two games for this entire episode I think he's a young player made a mistake he probably feels fortunate that it's only two games and that is what it is but you said it last episode I think Brad where we were talking about the Department of Player Safety it has been zero days since we've had a dops complaint Uh, why am I ever surprised still and it's because they find new and exciting ways to surprise us even when they're following their own rules they're like ah yeah, but that was us on Tuesday. Now well, it's Wednesday. It's a whole different day.
0: Hey, it all depends when you have your coffee in the morning. I am very guilty of it. Oh. The things I want to do at work and do do at work, wildly different depending on when that coffee's hitting.
1: I'm much the same way, but if in a world of me's and you's, it's a bad place for everyone else.
0: Very much so.
1: The brads of the world would suffer. Actually, one I, of us... One of Would the I, I am suffering?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so that's the Red Wings. They Their upcoming games, they have the Rangers on Thursday. The Rangers are going to be a very motivated team. I know they're not going to be happy about their loss uh, to Detroit prior and uh, they, that's a game that they feel they should have won. Um, they also lost the Islanders as well. So con- those consecutive losses are going to hurt for them. So expect a motivated Rangers team coming into Little Caesars Arena. And then there is uh the start of the West Coast road trip, the LA Kings on the road on Saturday night 10:30 Eastern as well. So it'll be a late night game for those of you who are up with us covering it. And uh the big test for the Red Wings as they they come up
2: on a, a big road swing. I remember the West Coast road trip last year. I remember staying up late to watch that LA Detroit first period. That was bad.
1: Yeah, that was uh that was one of the most thoroughly out like outside of the outlier games. Like the
2: Pittsburgh and the Arizona. No, I would probably uh, like lay that period as the single worst period the Red Wings played the whole season. Yeah, Dude,
0: it, that L.A. flu. Yeah, what
2: well, were the shots? Twenty-eight to one after
0: the first.
1: It was. <laughs> we referenced that game for the rest of the season in terms of like you know when Detroit played bad against L.A. Yeah, that was the uh, that was a bad benchmark. Anyhow, that's what the Red Wings have coming up. Also, what the Red Wings have coming up for the New York game, Sunquist is back, which I think will be key.
0: Well, thank God. Well,
1: you look for fundamental the glue guys like you like to refer to, Evan. Like That's what he's been to start the season. I've really liked Sunquist's game for, mo- for the most part. So uh, provided that he's 100% back from injury, I think that's really important for him to be back on the team, especially if there's a reunification of the, uh, the Redwoods or the treesum, so to speak. Soderblom could probably benefit from that stability. He hasn't been having the best time since his hot start to the season. So I think it's important for, for the Sunquist of the team to be back. And Tyler Bertuzzi skating with the team uh, as of Tuesday morning, the Red Wings announced that he was seven to 10 days away, as well as Jake Wallman. Uh, So I think what we can expect is Tyler Bertuzzi is going to take that West Coast road trip with the team. He's going to travel with them, probably going to slot in as soon as he can. But you imagine that that's going to be sometime next week, probably not the LA game this weekend, but sometime mid next week the Red Wings might have one of their most important forwards back, so either the Anaheim game or the San Jose game next Tuesday or Thursday, that's massive. If Bertuzzi's able to be back next week and he's not too rusty and the hand isn't bothering him too much, like that is so crucial to this team. Because what could the Red Wings have used yesterday? More than just Lucas Raymond squeaking one through to tie the game halfway through the third period. Some more offense would have been a big help and. It's not really a hot take. Hockey team scores more goals, much better. But that's
2: what Tyler Bertuzzi will hopefully bring back to the squad. I mean, the Red Wings just need better players back. When Austin Zarnik is uh, who you're leaning on for goals uh, in that game, y- you could use a Tyler Bertuzzi. You could use, you know, uh, an Oscar Sundquist. <laughs> pumped for Zarnik. So pumped for
1: Zarnik. Anytime one of those guys, like Luff, I, I think like, they did really admirably and they they held their own really yeah. well and have been holding their own really well. But you want that to be a nice benefit, not a necessary feature in your lineup.
2: Yes, very much so.
1: Jake Wallman coming back. If he's able to make it back sometime next week as well, is he going to change up the top four of this defense? Likely not. But could he make a little bit of a difference in that third pairing? You'd hope so.
2: I would think so. Um because I have not liked what I've seen at all from Hager Lindstrom this year, so it would be pretty significant to be able to get Wallman out there. I haven't actually minded Osterley since he's come into the lineup. He had himself a good game. Yeah, he's been he's been better than the guys he's
1: replaced. We've talked a lot about Raymond really turning it on since his two-goal game. I thought Sider had a great game last night as well.
2: Sider's had a good stretch. Sider yeah. looks like himself again. Yes. I, I really started to notice it in the game against the Islanders. Mm-hmm. He He really looked like last season's version of himself.
1: Right now, he's still without a goal in the season, and right now you can see. Watch him. He is shooting for the deflection every single time. And I think as a defenseman, that has to that has to be how you have to approach it. I know people are clamoring for Sider to take the biggest clapper or a quick snapshot as quick as he can, but look, you're not going to increase the percentage of your point shots in terms of likelihood of going in just because you really want a goal real bad. Otherwise, phillips Zadina would be the NHL's first 100 goal scorer. That's just not how it works. Sider is making the smart plays and he knows it's going to come to him. And like you said, Brad, he's worked on the rest of his game and brought it back to the form that we know he has the goal is going to come. He, he's doing all things right. He's still getting on the score sheet with assists. The goal is going to come and he's making the right plays. I do think it's the same as last year where I'm like, I think his shot is better than he gives it credit for. Uh, so he shouldn't, you know, look off his own shot so much, but is, there's nothing to be concerned about, concerned about with Cider. I think he's doing really, really well and has broken out, hopefully broken out of the funk to start the season. Uh, Quick update on the, oh, sorry, we should also say Sunquist coming back, Bertuzzi coming back next week, uh, at least to start, like those are uh, the injuries that we're talking about right now. That is probably going to mean Bergeron is going to stay down. Uh, also, I can't remember who posted it, but they mentioned that Bergeron likely won't get called up unless it's for a prolonged period. So that just further leads to, they're not going to bring him on this
2: road trip to play a game or two. I think it was Ansar that tweeted that. Yeah, Ansar Khan. So it's what we talked about last episode. Continuity matters. Yeah. Also,
1: Bear grin, not Bergrin. I have to get used to saying that. It's Bear Grin, apparently. Bear Grin? More, more like, a, like, a, a, like a What large... about Bear Grills? Yeah, you can call him that. Okay. I'm sure he'd like it. Fair enough. We can ask him ourselves when we go to Grand Rapids. Excellent. Yeah. More, more Bear Grin than Bergrin. My God. Yeah, well, hey, we're learning every day My here. God. <laughs> we may
0: as well just have like a 15 minute segment every episode on learning Swedish.
1: We, hey, if we started seven years ago, we mm-hmm. would still not know Swedish now. That's right. Yeah, still
2: wouldn't be able to pronounce Soderblom properly.
0: <laughs> We'd learn Swedish, and they'd be like, "Oh no, it's actually pronounced this," and I would just throw the papers off the desk.
2: We're sitting here saying Bear grin, and someone's gonna like reply, "No, you're not talking about a large animal smiling. Get it right." Yeah, someone
1: actually said to me. With the uh, the Soderblom thing, they were like, "The only reason I, as a Swede, didn't blast you for getting that wrong is because you played the actual clip of Soderblom saying it himself." And even then, I still have a hard time believing you. I was like, "I don't know what you want
0: from us, man. We're doing our best here." We say both, and both sides yell at us.
1: <laughs> that's where we. That's what we are on this podcast. Everyone's mad, and that's how you know we're right about something or wrong about everything. You decide. And if you want to be mad about that, well, join in the choir. Uh. An update on the the Pavel Datsuk Hall of Fame thing. So it was Igor Larionov told Ken Daniels that he hadn't filed the official paperwork. Ken has since uh, received more clarification. Uh, it seems that Igor wasn't 100% correct. It doesn't need to be that he files any kind of official paperwork. It's just that there's a clock ticking now. So as long as Pavel Datsuk doesn't play any pro hockey, he is officially eligible after the 23-24 season to be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. So... The, uh, there's no official, I do declare that I am a retired professional hockey player. He just, the moment he stops playing professional hockey is when that clock starts. So, uh, Evan, I think you're eligible now. Yes. When's your nomination?
0: I don't know. I, that's why I keep my phone on vibrate. I'm waiting.
1: (laughs) So why don't you answer me when I text you?
0: Oh, it says your name pops up, so I don't look at it.
1: I got to change my name in this phone to actually, I don't know who. Hockey Hall of Fame. <laughs> Just change it to that.
0: Lanny <laughs> <laughs> McDonald.
1: Who in your life warrants an immediate response?
0: Uh, no, uh, we know
1: it's not Catherine. It's Kevin. It's Kevin. Uh, oh, it is Kevin. It it's
0: absolutely ab- is Kevin. It's his
1: golf buddy, Kevin.
0: Uh,
1: that guy who's way better. Or, you know what? There's
0: almost no one I answer the phone for if unless I'm like. 100% free. I mean, if it's my mother, I will pick it up. Good, man.
1: I don't know if uh, we've only said this on overtime episodes, but you will all be thrilled to hear that in Evan's life, there are two Ryans, and there is a Ryan, and there is a podcast Ryan. So
0: <laughs> You determine who's who.
1: <laughs> I am uh, putting that out there, having known Evan for seven and a half years.
0: You're unfortunately far behind other Ryan. Yeah. Yeah,
1: whatever. <laughs> um, you
0: see Philadelphia where the Cooper rolls?
2: Oh, that was sweet. I know why More they can't wear
0: it. More of that.
2: It was sweet. It's chafing. It's why they can't. Is I thought it was a
1: protection thing. Well, uh, I don't we're know. We're talking about the same thing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were awesome. I I knew they'd look cool and I saw them on the ice. I was like, oh man, that is so badass.
2: They they look awful, but it's one of those things that's so awful, it's great.
1: Was it was it you who was telling me people don't really think about it, but the sliding when you slide in Cooperalls, you
2: just go for a mile. I wasn't the one telling you that, but I've heard that as well.
1: Yeah. Anyhow, we're rambling. Let's get to someone who's going to bring you much more informative content. Kevin Woodley, who writes for In Goal Magazine. We talked to him about uh, NHL goaltending styles, the elite NHL goalies, what it means to draft a goalie with uh, a a high draft pick, and what do we actually know about goalies when we scout them, Huso and Adelkovich and everything in between. Super, super um, informative interview and The kind of information that we get from the uh, mind of a goalie brainiac is is so valuable. So without further ado, enjoy this interview with Kevin Woodley. All right. Welcome to the winged wheel podcast here with us today. We have Kevin Woodley. Uh, Kevin covers the Canucks for NHL.com and is also a resident goalie expert within goal magazine. Uh, Kevin, we always say on this show that we have no idea what we're talking about when it comes to goalies. So I'm really glad that, uh, you're here today. Thanks for joining us.
3: Well, like, uh, every time I I do one of these, I I always worry that my beer league team's going to hear it because I get introduced as an expert or they would tell you, let's just say that, uh, I don't know what I'm doing either, at least when I'm playing, but I've tried to learn (laughs) as much as I can about the position so I can talk about it. You know what they say, right? Those that can't do teach and those that can't do or teach, right? That's me. I'm writing about goaltending.
1: And then those who can't write, they podcast. So here we all are. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, so uh we I appreciated you um you trying to make this work from Rogers Arena yesterday. And I'm I'm glad that we called the Audible here. You had a busy night covering uh, that 13 goal game. Um the Careful. Red Wings, ha-
3: you start talking about 13 goal games to a goal, I'm gonna be in the fetal <laughs> position in the corner before long after that one. That was goalie nightmare fuel.
1: Well, Red Wings know all about 13 goal games, uh and, and their fans especially. And it's funny talking very seriously about goalies now because for a few years there, it was, you know, Jonathan Bernier and what was left of Jimmy Howard's career, or Bernier and and Thomas Grice. And now for a couple different reasons, uh, goalies are a hot topic in Detroit. So why don't we start with uh, the tandem that Detroit has and Steve Eisman has brought in over the past couple of seasons, which is seems to be right now Valey Husso 1A, seems to be the hot hand, especially last night, he was extremely solid. Uh, and Alex Nedeljkovic uh, on the other half of that net so two different style goalies and uh, very very different starts to the season for both of them Uh, what do you make of it in general so far over these first 10 or so games
3: yeah uh, like I like the tandem Um, I'd be perfectly honest I haven't had a chance to watch a lot of Red Wings games I don't know if you've noticed but we got a bit of a tire fire going on here in Vancouver this year they have kept me busy like between the injuries, not to give them the injuries as an excuse, but between the injuries and the fact that, like, either the GM or the president of hockey operations seems to be talking every couple days or, you know, talking about the coach is safe or whatever. Like, it's, it's been a rough start here in Vancouver and it's kept me busy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, like, like I, I know Ned's game really well. Um, had, had a chance to sort of, we've had him on the in goal radio podcast. Um, had a chance to sort of build you know not just a relationship there but an understanding of some of the things that go into his game sort of what 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 he sees is the keys um and and sort of what allows him to have success and i'm a big fan of his and and billy huso's a guy that you know i, I know the the st louis uh, the goalie coach there um david alexander and, and and have a glimpse into sort of how he's progressed and i think we should add a you know like when you talk about um, changes in Detroit in the crease. Like, I think there's a name you need to add to that. And that's Alex Weslin, uh, the new goaltending coach who comes over from the Washington Capitals and a guy who, to be honest with you, was a finalist for some other jobs before this. Like, I'm a little surprised given the success that he had in Hershey in the Capital system that this didn't happen sooner. Uh, and good on the Red Wings for hopping all over him. Cause I think there were other teams that were around him too, uh, in a summer where we saw a number of new jobs. And so I liked, um, not only, what their sort of goalie tandem look like. But I like what I think Alex is going to bring that tandem. I think a lot of the sort of foundations and fundamentals that he preaches are going to fit right in with the strengths of a Billy Huso. And I think there might be a few new concepts there um, for Ned, who's, who's again, whose game I really like, but there might be a few new concepts in terms of biomechanics and tracking um, and some of the points of emphasis um, or, or I shouldn't say points of emphasis, but things that Alex uh has learned and has exposure to that are maybe different than or or a little ahead of the curve than what everyone else is doing and I think those will benefit Ned as well he would have had a taste of them uh in Carolina with Paul Schoenfelder but just having reinforcement for it um yeah I'm this game for goalies right now if you can't skate you can't play uh as much as we pursue uh, or the NHL pursues you know these six foot five giants I know you're maybe a little undersized there tandem wise um, not two of the biggest goalies in the league, but man, can they move? Um, and in a game that has increasingly become east-west and dynamic offensive attacks, the more you can beat plays on your skates as a goaltender, the better off you will be. And you have two really good goalies when it comes to that in both Ned and Huso. And and you know the other thing I'll say about Ned it thinks the game at a really high level, like really processes it at a high level. We've done that in goal. We have something called Pro Reads. Where we actually sit down and watch a video with goalies and they they sort of, the idea is to help young kids who can get a little bit goalie school goalied. I hate the phrase, but that's the reality. You know, you're always going to camps and everything is a structured drill and you know where the next pass goes and so you look fantastic. You look like an NHLer. Hell, I got NHLers that tell me these kids look better than them like in these drills. But then the game happens for real and they get lost. Because they don't know how to process and read and so we have goalies sit down and watch video to help the kids learn like what information are you picking up on a rush that helps you determine whether to play it at the top of your crease or to back off whether to drop that inside leg to load for a push across like what cues are you looking for how do you read the game and man when i when we do pro reads with ned it's like boom, mushroom clouds going off like he's just picking up cues and the way he processes the game is exceptional so uh, I love the tandem. I like the success he had in Carolina. Tough environment there last year, um, but I think as the environment improves for these guys, you've got two goalies who will have success behind it.
1: On, on a couple different fronts, there seems to be this like dichotomy that's that's bubbled to the surface in terms of goalies. Uh, you know the the steadfast, positionally sound, smart goaltender who's there before the puck who's a little bit safer and, and will make more of the saves that he should, uh, but maybe the ceiling is lower. And on the other side is this raw athletic freak who plays a little bit like Dominic Haschuk and drives you insane, but is a contortionist and can make the kinds of saves that no other goalie can. Um, my suspicion is that the the truth of goalies is somewhere in between, but it, this seems to be where the conversation has fallen into. So from uh, someone who knows goalies, uh, outside of what his beer league thinks about him, uh, what's the truth behind that, if at all?
3: Um, Goaltending is a, like, there are, like, there are multiple different sort of, I talked about skating and how if you can't skate, you can't play in today's game. Um, there are sort of, like, there's all these different factors that go into building an elite goaltender. Uh, Ian Clark of the Vancouver Canucks is one of the top goalie coaches in the league. Um, he listed them and now, now on the spot, I, I don't have them in front of me. I'm not going to be able to remember, like, his sort of seven or eight keys to elite goaltending. But the reality is, Nobody – like it's like a recipe. Nobody has, these, you know, the same dash or pinch of each one. It's a sliding scale. And it's the same thing when you talk about, you know, technique versus athleticism. And athleticism is a phrase that gets thrown around, you know, like it doesn't necessarily apply in the way that I think most people think of it. Like athleticism, people think, like you said, hashic, barrel rolls, diving, you know, like windmill glove saves – Like, to me, athleticism is the ability to, like, contorting your body. The butterfly is contorting your body. It's an unnatural position for the human body. That's why we see so many goalies end up having surgery at various points because their hips don't work. The human body was not designed for the hip to internally rotate. So, like, to me, athleticism isn't just the diving and the barrel rolls and the flashy glove saves. To me, athleticism is having the speed and the footwork to be able to beat plays on your skates, to be able to... It, when you can't beat it on your skates, to butterfly slide uh, on a backdoor pass rather than diving and build that coverage with a good push where you're you're not even extending your pad, you're pushing through your hips and your knees so the pad doesn't leave the ice. If I reach with my pad with my toe, my knee comes off the ice and I break my seal. If I've done the work athletically and done my pails and rails and all these different training methods that these guys do in the summer, I can reach by pushing through my hip and my knee and maintain that seal. And if I have the right biomechanics and movement and I come down into that movement head first, sort of top down, now I can sort of stay over top of that pad and over top of that puck and build coverage above that pad with my glove and have my torso leaning into it and have access to that puck. Whereas if I just stuck my leg out and reached with my glove, the rest of me comes away from it. So like athleticism is training your body to be able to make these movements at high speed and connect all these different dynamic elements, like a rush coming down the wing and I'm retreating bang, bang, bang down into my pose. And okay, now it's a sharp angle play. Bang, I'm into reverse VH. Now they go behind the net. I'm across to the other post and they go back up to the point. Bang, I beat that play to the... So there are so many... at Like the whole thing is athletic. And the speed with which you can connect those moments and get into those motions, like that that to me is athleticism. But on a sliding scale, but at the same time, you also then have to have... That's technical athleticism. You have to have this other layer uh where it's reactionary. Um, where it's – sometimes it's going outside the box and making those saves that you talked about. Thatcher uh, Demko made one last year that I, I struggle to describe. It was – and everyone's probably seen the play by now. Like, it was that crazy sequence where he lost his blocker against, I think it was the Islanders or the Rangers. He loses his blocker. He's diving all over the place. At the end of it, he's on his belly – and he, he's looking over like to his left. You can see that he actually sees the puck about to be shot. And he's got, the whole net's exposed. He's on his belly. He doesn't have a blocker. It's madness going on around. And he performs a scorpion save with the heel of his skate. But most scorpion saves are around the net, just this, you know, like a foot off the ice. Like, you know, you're beat and your pad's along the ice. And you realize the guy's going to raise it. And it's like, crap, I've only got t- well, 11 inches of coverage with my pad. He's going to raise You can see he's raising it. So you kick your heel up. Dude, this thing was labeled top corner. And, like, he literally did the worm. I have no other way of describing it. Like, he must have been a breakdancer as a kid. He won't admit it, but he must have it. He literally did the worm in order to elevate his skate up. And you can see that he's watching the puck as it gives with the heel. Like, those extra elements, that's a separator, right? And so, every goalie has different mixes of this sliding scale and all these different attributes. And you have to find the right blend. And you have to, A, have it but then no B when to apply it. That's where the reads come in. And so that's sort of how I look at it. Now, once we figure out what that mix is on goalies, they tend to lead to different things. Like a technically sound goalie, like technique to me breeds consistency. That's your foundation. If you rely too much on all that other stuff, hard to repeat. Moving efficiently, getting into, I talk about that reverse VH, getting into that post off the rush with a smooth transition that doesn't leave you exposed short side, but also leaves you with the ability, to, like I said, if the, if the moment is behind the net off that rush entry, down to the goal line and behind the net, being able to connect that to your other post. Or if it goes back up to the middle, can you connect that seamlessly? The more efficient and technically sound you are in those movements and moments, that's going to give you consistency because that allows you to get to position. And in a game where no matter how we game plan it, no matter how much we plan for being in the right spot in all these moments, can still end up chaotic because I connect all these moments, I move to the perfect spot and the guy at the point or actually more frequently now, the guy out of the corner funnels it to the net, it hits three bodies and bounces around randomly. Like there's still that. So the more I can put myself in position to be hit, Gives me that baseline of consistency. And it's when that's not enough to be a great NHL goalie to just have that. You can't just be great technically, but that's a nice foundation for consistency. And then, you know, where do all these other skills, where on the scale do they fit? And then to add all into it, do my skills fit the system that my team is playing in front of me? And so often we see goalies brought in because they're a good goalie as opposed to goalies brought in because they're a good goalie whose skill set also suits what we give up as a team, or what our system, how our system is structured. I've I've seen a few that I I, I know a couple teams I can't really say which ones that do have used Clear Analytics as an example to dig into all the sort of different types of scoring chances and at least look at hey this goalie is really good at that and hey we give up a lot of that that fits versus vice versa. Even when you do that, you sign a guy to a long-term contract, what are the chances the system, the defensemen, and the coaches haven't changed within the life of that? Like that evolves, right? So there's no perfect answer, but boy, do I love it when teams actually at least try to find a better answer when they make those decisions.
1: So this this leads into the next question, or the next couple of questions, and it's uh, based on the premise that teams have a varied, to put it in a friendly way, uh, level of understanding of goaltenders and uh, their development and their play. Based on how you see the NHL at large, their understand their level of understanding of goaltenders. What do you think when an NHL team takes a goalie with a like premium first round pick or trades a lot of uh, uh, trade or draft capital to get a goalie?
3: Okay, draft. I mean, draft is a more unknown quantity, right? Like, like there's, I mean, there's an element of risk, and I think we attach the stigma of a greater element of risk to goaltending. Um, but given the, like, uh, someone did this and I, I can't remember, I, I know at Ingle, Greg Ballack has tweeted about it before and done some looks at it. Like when you sort of break down, like the number of, because there's fewer pick, the number of misses get highlighted, but really the failure rate isn't that, like the, the failure rate isn't that much different than, than players overall. Um, but yeah, like at the end of the day, when you're making a trade for a guy, you've seen these patterns established at the National Hockey League. You've seen him well enough, but a guy in, like... I think we've come a long way. Let's put it that way. We've come a long way in terms of knowing what to look for. Is it a perfect science? No. If I had all the answers, we wouldn't be talking. I'd have a job and, and, and some team, if, if I could unlock the secrets to all this, some team would be paying me to do so. You wouldn't um, be on a podcast this morning. <laughs> I'd I'd still talk to you because <laughs> I enjoy these conversations. But um, maybe the team wouldn't let me. I, I don't know that there's any secret sauce there, but we're at least asking the right questions now. And for the longest time, we weren't like we saw, you know, like how many highly successful CHL goalies, uh, quite a few who, um, had, uh, world junior success on top of it. How many of those guys were picked over the years, you know, especially like 10, 15 years ago, like really high and then failed in the National Hockey League or didn't have that same ceiling. And it's like, well, we were just looking at the success they had. If I, looking back, even then I could see it. Like these are goals when we talk about structure, like the CHL especially, you're, there are super teams. Like you have teams that like the level of discrepancy from the haves and the have-nots in any given year can be like wild. And so you can get goalies in environments that are just so goalie friendly. They're, as long as they can get to position and just get hit. And that doesn't apply anymore. You can't get away with being a blocker, but there was a whole generation there where you could just be big, get hit. And if you could get to that spot, because every chance that they gave up, sometimes they didn't give up hardly any, but everyone did, you know, every time they did, there was pressure. There was a stick on a guy. Like, there were just guys that were succeeding that got drafted high that you looked at and you're like, have they really looked at the skill set here? Or are they just drafting this base off wins and numbers and world junior pedigree? And there were a number of failures in that regard. I think now every team has its different mix. I talked about Ian Clark's, you know, keys to elite goaltending and that sliding scale and does this guy have this does he have that you you talk about athleticism uh Ian talks about length uh we talk about size length is different than size you have tall goalies that can't get that extension i talked about with sort of driving through the hips like they can't get wide in a butterfly Uh, I'll give you a good example Ilya Samsonov He's really, I think he's still a goalie that I, like he's going to unlock some things in Toronto. I think that process started in his final year in Washington. Because the other thing, you draft a goalie high. I've seen this. I've seen this in Jacob Markstrom. Drafted high, best goalie not in the National Hockey League, right? For years, Jacob Markstrom was the best goalie not in the National Hockey League, and I'd watch him play in the American Hockey League, and I was like six foot six, just massive monsters. Incredible athleticism, reactionary athleticism. That's what I call the the stuff you talk about, like the dynamic elements, the dynamic saves. Incredible. But I watched him in the American Hockey League. I'm like, where the hell is he going? Like, why is he outside the crease like a foot and a half? Why is he playing so aggressively so that when the play goes east west, he's got to take that massive frame? And like, when we move as goalies, there's an open, and we're trying to teach. And there's 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 new ways of moving that can limit this, make it more efficient. But at the end of the day, to go east-west, to make a tee push, you have to open the skate. And you have to open and then close when you get there. And when you open and close, you open holes. And the bigger the goalie, and this is the sliding scale of small to big, big goalies have to overcome those holes. And this guy was like two feet outside the crease. I'm watching the American Hockey League. I'm like, what the hell is he doing? And he wasn't succeeding, right? And... The people in Florida aren't idiots. Robbie Tallis is a hell of a goalie coach. I guarantee you he could see it. And so he gets traded here to Vancouver. And one of the first things goalie coach at the time, Roley Melanson, says, it's like Roley, one of Roley's rules was, we always have to have blue ice in front of our toes. So in other words, contained within the crease. And so that was the first stage of Jacob Markstrom's development into the Besna Trophy finalists we see now. Just the first of many. Spent a year with Dan Cloutier in the minors. People forget that any team in the league could have had him on waivers the next year. Um, And then Ian Clark comes in and he refined some of the technical elements as well. And he's actually simplified some of those things again, now moving to Calgary. But I'll never forget the first year. Jacob comes in and he says he he has a little more success with rolling. He was traded in the Roberto Luongo trade. But he sat down with me and he was quite honest. And he said, i got to be honest, when I first acquired me and they asked me to play differently, to play within my crease, my first thought was, Why the hell do you want to change me? You acquired me. You got me. Why do you want to change? and I'm thinking to myself, how the hell did you not see that wasn't working? To be as a grad like h- how? Like I'm just some guy who decided to try and learn about goaltending, and gets to talk on podcasts, and I could see it. I guarantee you Robbie Tallis could see it. But sometimes you can't make those changes with those guys. That's you know, they've had success for so long. Sometimes it takes a new voice. Sometimes it takes a change of scenery. Like, I think you're seeing that in Samsonov. It wasn't until late last season that he started to buy into some of the changes that were they were. like. And, and I thought he had success at the end of the year. Obviously, it was too late for Washington to commit to him. So, I actually see his success in Washington or in Toronto now. And I think he'll have it um, as a continuation of what started late last year. But it took that long. You know, he would come to camp we're wanting to forget Mitch Korn was there. Like Mitch Korn was there, sent him back to Russia with some things they'd like to do differently. And my understanding and knowing the Russian goalie coaches, he got back there. and was like, no, no. Like, really? Like I'm a, I'm a high pick. I'm having success playing this thing. Yeah, but it's Mitch Korn. Like guys sort of built a lot of elite goaltending over the years. Right. And you're, you really went back to Russia and said, no, no thanks. Right. So that's part of it. Right. Like that unwillingness. Uh, we talked about the biomechanics, though, too. Like Samsonov, you could compare him to Sorokin or Shisterkin and a lot of people did, right? When I talk about length and the ability to sort of spread out without opening up, at the end of the day, I never saw Ilya Samsonov ceiling as high as Shishterkin and Sorokin, and I think that's played out. Even though I think there's more to come for Ilya, it won't get that high, because he doesn't have that length. His butterfly is narrow. And so you see a lot of sort of saves around the crease and it's like a, the pinball's kicking out, bang, 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 bang. But if you think about it, like if these are my pads. And hopefully people are listening, hopefully they can see the video. If, if I need to move to my left and my pads are on the ice in a butterfly and I need to move to my left, I have to lift this right pad off the ice to push. That's how we move in a butterfly. And so a guy like Shisterkin or Sorokin, they got a super wide, like natural butterfly. They can just basically lift this pad like this much and they got an edge and they and they actually use their lead skate to build rotation as they do it. It's insane. Vasilevsky is one of the first to do that and Sorokin's doing it. It's like a hovercraft out there. It's like another level. Sorry, it's just They barely have to lift that leg, right? Like it's right there. It's access and it's on angle. Ilias pads are like back here, narrow butterfly. So if he needs to push left, not only does he need to lift the leg a little higher to get the clearance, but he's got to move it all the way out here to get the angle. And that takes longer. And all those saves that you see him making in the crease where he's kicking the, the flippers out because he's narrow and he's got to kick at it. Well, if I got to kick at it with this pad and then move in that direction, I kicked, I got to pull that pad back, and now I have to make that other move to make that movement. Just delays in movements that are traced to biomechanics. Um, are there things you can do to widen your butterfly? We talk about pails and rails and, ice and all these different trainings and things that, frankly, I throw at the phrase, but I'm just, you know, because I can't do it myself. I'm old. But I understand what they're trying to do. You can build better hips, but at at, at some point, he has physical limitations that the other two Russians don't. And so that's that's an example of your original question about scouting. Oh my God, have I gone off on tangents? That that's like that's what we uh, we understand now. I understand that, and I'm assuming most goalie coaching staffs understand that now. Like, hey, if we were to go back and look at Ilya Sorokin, we might recognize that that narrow butterfly. If I'm choosing between those three guys that there are me- sort of biomechanical body limitations in, in Ilya Samsonov's game that Shesterkin and Sorokin don't have. And that not only would I pick the other two if I had the choice, I don't even think that was the same draft years, but like when we were comparing them and everybody was talking about these Russian three who are going to be the next Vasilevsky, the reality was one of them had limitations that the other two didn't. And I think you're seeing that play out to a degree in the NHL.
1: You know, I, I had a fear having you on um... – which is that we always say goalies are voodoo on this podcast, and we don't mean we can never talk about goalies. It's it's more of a joke than anything. But uh, after hearing all that, first of all, the the amount of insight into the biomechanics and everything else that goes in, it's fascinating stuff. And uh, please know that I will can be continuing to say goalies are voodoo based on the complexity of everything that you just talked about.
3: I don't take it as a, like I don't, like I'm not. In, we have people in, in in my community, our little weirdo goalie corner, um, that are insulted by it, but I'm not one. I understand it is, it's a different sport, man. Like yeah. it is literally a different sport within the sport of hockey. It's so different. So I get it. But hopefully the point I'm making, or, or your listeners are hearing is, if you really want to dig into it, and again, all the answers? No. Because if I had, if if, if the, and, and I don't, I don't have any of this. This has all come from me learning from people Who are smarter and have been doing this longer in the goalie world that are willing to share their knowledge and their insights with me. That's the only reason I know any of this. But if I can learn all this and see these details and remove some of that guesswork, that it's less voodoo. At the end of the day, much like picking anybody in the draft, there's still a risk element, right? I can talk about technique and biomechanics. You know what I can't do? I can't see inside their head. And how many like, and that's one thing, like goaltending is mental. I know guys that have had skill sets that should have played in the National Hockey League, but they couldn't get out of their own way. Or it took them longer because they couldn't get out of their own way mentally, right? So no perfect answers, but hopefully we eliminate some of the guesswork. It doesn't have to be guesswork. Now, there are a lot of signposts along the way that can tell us how this is going to go.
1: Right. So I think maybe the last topic here to wrap up is... Uh, just a general question about what makes an elite or superstar goalie in the NHL. So you've talked a lot about Vasilevsky and Shostakovich and Sorokin. And I think those are the names Demko probably, I know this season has, has some question marks raising for people, but Demko's name would probably be up. There.
3: Well, when a, hey, like, like every second goal is a backdoor tap and it's a little tough. And this is where the lim- we have limitations yeah. on analytics. I just watched John Gibson last night, give up seven goals on 47 shots. And I'm like best player on the ice. And some of them end up being bad goals. Like so some of them were like, "Ah, I wish he had that one." And maybe if he did, maybe they could have come back. But honestly, like, like I don't know how he plays in that. Like it's a tire fire every night. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
1: Based on your in-depth understanding, and based on the the, the concept of some goalies are in environments where you're not going to see the fruits of their labor. How many true superstar or elite goalies are there in the NHL right now? And is it more or less than what we've seen in previous generations? Because some people are arguing it's a little bit uh, sparse out there for goalies right now.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I think that uh, this is what I love about the setup you have there uh, in Detroit with with Billy and Ned. Um, We're heading that way. I think one of the reasons we're heading that way, put it in fantasy football terms, the floor on all these guys, has gotten higher and higher and higher. At a time when the the amount of offense and the dynamic nature of the offense is getting tougher and tougher to manage, the floor of the goalies is actually getting higher. But you're right about the ceiling, the number of guys who had that sort of elite number one ceiling. It's a short list. I, I would have put Thatcher Demko in at the start of the season. Now, he hasn't had the start, but I literally, and then he had off-season surgery. I you know, don't know how many people outside of this market are aware of that. Uh, the injury that ended his last year, his season last year required an operation. Um, he didn't have a normal summer in terms of his routine and his training as much as he tried to tell us that was probably a good thing because his body needed rest. Um, and he, we're creatures of habit and routine, right? So, you can plant seeds of doubt. But I watch, like, I, I'd still put him in that category. And everyone's going to be like, oh, look at the numbers. I'm, like, I'm sorry. I still do. I watch him move. Uh, I did, I, he was on the ice every day, uh, every weekday in August here with the goalie coach. And I was there watching and filming for In Goal Magazine because, you know, uh, learn from the best uh, is, a, is, is a good idea. I, like, I literally put some of that stuff on social media. I had other NHL goalies going, oh, my God, like his movement is so powerful and controlled. And like, so this will turn for him because I've got him in that class. But you're right. It's a short list and there's variation from year to year. I had Carter Hart in that class right? And now he's finally sort of getting a chance to put it together. I don't know how much of that was environment because the environment was terrible. Um, you know, But what I see in Carter's game, for example, is there's a goalie that was like technical perfection. Oh my God, was he fun to watch. Like the rotation, the movements, the uh, precision. Um, it's funny when I watch him now, there's a lot more ugly saves. Like in scramble situations, like he's just laying out, like, if you're in a butterfly and you stick your leg out, and you've got nothing left, and you haven't quite got to the post, you, and that guy's going to go around you, the quickest way, and people can do this at home, not if you're driving. I always say that one on radio. If you're in a butterfly and you stick your leg out and it's like, oh crap, that guy's still got space and I can't get there, the quickest way is to allow your torso to fall forward. If you just let your, we used to call it the loo flop here in Vancouver. Mike Smith was good at it too, although maybe a little more than you'd like let your torso fall forward and that leg will stick out like another 4 to 6 inches right like that's how you get extension sometimes though like those technically excellent goaltenders they want to make the proper movement on the pro- like Carter's i've watched Carter end up on his belly more than ever and maybe he's finding and maybe it's just a small sample but for a goalie who is so elite technically maybe he's finally after all these years realizing there's times where he has to just throw technique out the window and go dial up goalie 911 and do whatever the hell it takes, even if it looks fugly, it works, right? Like, you have to battle sometimes, and he seems to – he did that in junior, and it looks like he's doing that again. So is he back in my elite list? Probably want to see more of a sample size, but I've always been a Carter Hart guy, so I've always believed that talent would shine through. Yeah man it's it is like it's Shishterkin it's Sorokin it's Vasilevsky. like I said I have Demko there I have Soros there and again another goalie who's had a, maybe a statistically tough start to the season Jake Gottinger's pushing look at the start Stuart Skinner's had to the year you know are they, they don't go in the elite class yet cuz you need to do it year after year after year that's where Vasilevsky gets it right that's why he's the best goalie in the world has Shishterkin caught him from a skill set standpoint and what he does on the ice yeah probably but has he done it year after year after year and playing a ton of minutes like Vassie? No. So I uh, still my best goalie in the world category. Right. But so it's, yeah. I mean, yes, you can make that argument that a lot of the elite guys, we, we ha- we're not seeing as many at that high, high, high number one, like superstar level as we did before. But boy, like we have way more one B options that can do the job. And I think some of these guys with more reps are going to get there. I think we forget like in the last three years, We've lost 12 guys. I wouldn't call them all superstars, but we've lost 12 guys who were like, you could count on them for 60 to 65 a year. Number one goalies, no doubt in the NHL. Like for those that are watching the video over my shoulder are three of them, right? Like we've lost Luango, Lundquist and price the, you know, the Olympic jerseys behind me, they're not playing anymore. And those were like minute eaters, you know? Um, I did a story at NHL.com recently about this, about the sort of changing of the guard. Like the only one that had sort of receded to backup status before retiring was kind of Ryan Miller. But the other ones, like even Jimmy Howard in Detroit, right? Like Jimmy Howard, you know, as the team crumbled around him a little bit, the numbers weren't the same, but you could count on him. You know, and those that meant that these younger guys didn't have opportunities. So now they're getting the opportunities and they're stepping into these roles and maybe not all of them have got that, that superstar status yet, or, or like you said, elite, but some of them are just going to work towards it, right? Like we forget that Kerry Price was not elite at 20. There were signs we could see it, but there was up and down. There were stumbles until he figured things out. Um, there was Yaroslav Halak, right? Like keep Yarrow, get rid of Kerry. Like there was that push. So, um, I, I, I get it. I understand it. People aren't wrong in that regard. Um, but like I said, I think there's more really good goalies than there's ever been before. And I think we got to remember too, the offense, like the amount that's going into scoring now, I, I put it this way, players have finally caught up to goaltenders for the last two decades. Goalies went out in the summer and they improved at their craft. Players went out in the summer and got bigger, faster, stronger, no skill development. Like, that was just it, right? Like, they worked out and Mm -hmm. they got, they, and they got faster and they got bigger and they got stronger. No skill development work. Players are now treating scoring the way goalies have always treated preventing scoring. Like, we talk about the biomechanics of goaltending. We now have skills coach that are breaking down the biomechanics of shooting, you know, like how to deception, um, understanding these analytics. We talk about goalie analytics. How about understanding the analytics? Like, that means understanding how to score on goalies, like East-West, lateral plays. Like, don't shoot on that two-on-one because it's got a 20% chance of going in, but if the pass goes cross-ice and you make it work, it's got a 50% I, top of my head. I, I, it's roughly double. Um, so it's getting harder and harder to be a goalie in the league. And so, yeah, we don't see guys carrying the load at the level of the Longos and the Prices and the Lundquist just yet, but the amount of guys who are able to sort of carry water in the national hockey. League. Like I said, fantasy football terms, the ceiling may not seem as high on as many guys, but the floor's never been higher on that many guys as, as we have right now. And and that I do believe.
1: Kevin, on top of everything that you've uh, illuminated, not just for the listeners, but for me today, one thing I can definitely walk away with is that I know there's so much more to learn about goaltending. So uh, I'm going to use this moment to corner you uh, into saying that we're going to definitely have you back on the show uh, in the future, but thank you so, so much for the time this morning, folks, uh, Kevin Woodley covering the Canucks for NHL.com and lending his immense amount of goalie wisdom to, uh, in goal magazine. Thank you so, so much, Kevin.
3: Well, Hey, listen, anybody that like we just did 35 minutes and I think I let you get three questions in and I only answered two of them properly. So I tend to ramble. I appreciate anyone who's willing to listen to me ramble and, uh, I appreciate the interest and I appreciate you having me on.
1: No, it was great. Thanks so much. All right. Welcome back. Uh, That was our interview with Kevin Woodley. We're laughing because uh, Evan was currently getting in trouble. (laughs) We were delayed returning from the interview uh, because Evan was getting in trouble via text. So he's going to have a sleepover with Abby in my living room tonight.
0: Yeah. Today got a lot better, (laughs) at least for me and Abby.
1: Yeah. I hope you like waking up every three hours.
0: Eh, That's that's the Fred schedule, too. Yeah. Uh,
1: Really, really great interview with Kevin and uh, someone who will definitely have back on the illumination into the world of goaltenders has, like I said uh, with Kevin, has confirmed that goalies are voodoo and crazy. Is, still stands, but there is so much information there that I think the NHL is still catching up on. Uh, some quick NHL news. The most obvious thing in the world right now, I just want to say this. It's so obvious that the NHL and Ryan Reynolds are on a little media tour to find him a billionaire or a consortium of billionaires to tack on to his bid to buy. And I'm totally okay with it.
2: I you know, jokes aside and how hilariously sad it looks from certain angles. Look at what Ryan Reynolds did with Wrexham. Like this would be legitimately great for the NHL. Like he took a what tier three English soccer team and turned them into like a worldwide success Uh, in terms of popularity, revenue. Careful saying English. British. Welsh. Welsh. They're Welsh. Oh geez. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Are they? I actually didn't know. I thought we just
1: I I dude, I don't follow soccer. It's football.
2: Shut up. Yeah, they're Welsh. Okay, whatever. Yeah. A Welsh soccer team. Yeah. Football team. Yep. <laughs> I don't follow... This kind of proves my point. I do not follow... <laughs> I do not follow Yeah, yeah English yeah. football, soccer at all, and I know who Wrexham is. Yeah. So if you get Ryan Reynolds into the NHL, especially into a smaller market team like the Ottawa Senators, that is... Would be phenomenal for the league,
0: and that's how I know it will never happen.
2: Well, exactly. No, I think
1: it will, and here's why. First of all, he's not going to be able to elicit the same control. Uh, you know, even with,
0: if he's sorry, even if he's a minority owner, there you go. Like they, you, you've established everything you need with Ryan Reynolds.
1: They just went through the most tumultuous, terrible public situation with ownership with Eugene Melnick, and this is their chance to not just reset but move in the other direction. Ryan Reynolds and, and what he's done with Wrexham is a, a, it's not a perfect proof of concept because again, minority team, like a very small team, I should say. And uh, he had a majority stake in it and could elicit more control, but even just the positive PR, anything they can do because they need positive PR in Ottawa, because they need trust from fans. They need trust from investors. They need trust from the city, especially with this little Bretton flats deal. They have lawsuits to settle. They need a positive face to, to generate excitement especially as a team is finding its form, which ooh, DJ might be on the chopping block. Um, I think that's why the NHL is pushing it. it. If it's Ryan Reynolds, if it's some nameless group of uh, like FSG equivalent that buys, it, it doesn't actually matter, but you can see why they're buying into it. I will say Gary Bettman's saying sugar mommy and sugar daddy on record is a little bit jarring for me, but uh, 2022 has thrown us a lot of curveballs.
0: Have you ever heard of the, uh, the media social media term soft posting no it's where like someone will post pictures with someone else but it'll be like if you're up for dinner you only see like their hands and you're like are they dating someone Mm, okay and then like you see another picture and it's like just like a one body part or like they allude that there's somebody there okay like are they dating they're not tagging them they're not having pictures directly explicitly with each other
1: that's interesting
0: that's what the NHL and Ryan Reynolds are doing right now. They're like, is he buying the team? He's just kind of there. No one's really saying anything.
2: Well, has there any ever been anything like this before where, where a celebrity or someone noteworthy, whatever you want to classify it as, is sitting here going, I want a piece of this team. I just need, to quote Gary Bettman, a sugar daddy or mommy. What? <laughs> <Todd. laughs>
1: yeah. Brand new sentences. <laughs> yep.
2: I, I saw the opportunity to speak a never-before-spoken sentence, and I had to I had to do it.
0: <laughs> it made
2: me uncomfortable,
0: I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I
2: almost puked a little bit. Was it worse when I said it, or was it worse when Gary said it? Uh, um, I think you. Funny. Because I was quoting Gary. Yeah. Yeah, so I got the double whammy there. That makes it even better. But I, I don't think I've remembered this in any other sport where someone's saying, yes, I would like to own this team. I do not have enough money to purchase the team, but I would like to be involved. Can someone... It's because teams have... I say that all the
0: himself. time. No one's listening. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, you're the billionaire
1: that he's trying to talk to. Call Ryan Reynolds. Oh, you won't pick up the phone for him. You can't have Ryan Reynolds. You already have Ryan in podcast, Ryan. You can't,
0: I can't have, yeah. What would I even call Ryan Reynolds?
2: If you call him, Otto... Handsome <laughs> Ryan. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, it's just getting personal now. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> oh
1: God. Anyways. Um, other NHL news, scary moment with Evander Kane. Uh, he's out, what is it? Three or four months. Yeah. Skate ran right over his wrist. That was,
3: <laughs>
1: yeah, horrifying, but, uh, glad he was able to get to the bench right away. And not that that's going to be an easy recovery, but
2: yeah, it was handled from all accounts exactly as it should have been. Yeah. Which, you know, in years past, wasn't always the case. Um, years past, I'm talking like eighties and nineties, not, um, Recent times, but yeah, because Kane immediately realized something was wrong and got the hell moving, which was the right thing for him to do. Pat Maroon, credit to him, immediately realized what was happening and started frantically waving down the training staff. And then uh, I think it was Jean Principe was in the tunnel as Evander Kane was running past him yelling, help, help, help. And apparently he did not have to go very, very far at all before they were right there to to give him some first aid.
1: Okay. Uh, we're going to jump into overtime on this episode of the winged wheel podcast, which is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash winged podcast. If you want to join the dub dub club, you get access to things like our Patreon exclusive overtime episodes, like Evan alluded to at the st- start of this episode, which is, um, <laughs> all of our, as, as Mel would refer to it, uh, all of our bullshit, uh, <laughs> combined in, in one space. It's actually a lot of fun and we loosen up and we uh, talk about anything and everything um, and we answer all the questions that don't get right out on the main episode. There's also our Patreon-exclusive Discord, the Winged Wheel Podcast Discord that you got access to. We're giving away two tickets to every Red Wings home game this season, uh, and most of those are going directly to patrons, so there's one that I'm drawing for right after we're done recording this episode for the Rangers game tomorrow. ton of other benefits, so patreon.com slash Podcast. Some questions. Coyote Season Tickets in Tempe says, how much of an impact do you expect Sunquist's return will have on the other two Redwoods? the latter of whose production has fallen off dramatically as of late. Lord Elmer has gotten close in some scrambles outside the net over the past few games, and Rass has always seemed to get at least a couple of good looks, but nothing is going in for either of them. Is Oscar the straw that stirs the drink?
2: Well, uh, according to line rushes this morning, the Redwoods will not be reunited tomorrow. It looks like it's Adam Ernie uh, skating with them, and Soderblom is skating with Valeno's line. But, yeah, Sundquist's is and has been the catalyst on that line. And I would imagine with Ernie being there, it'll still be Sunkfist, who is, as you call it, the straw that the drink.
1: Justin Whitmer says, if you're putting a football team together with Red Wings players, who's your QB, running back, wide receiver, tight end kicker?
2: Oh my God. Quarterback. We got to start there. It's got to be Larkin. You'd think Larkin. You'd think. He, he's got the athletic tools. feel like he could scramble well. Outside
1: shot cider, but maybe cider more likely is the wide receiver. I know that's weird considering a defenseman and putting him in such an offensive position, but I don't know.
2: No, Soderblom's my wide receiver. He's coming down with every contested catch. Interesting. Okay. Throw, throw that thing seven feet in the air. Nobody's getting it but him. Tight end is Ben Sherratt.
1: That's a good call. Just a brick shit house. Yep. Uh, running back. Burt? Just the madman to skate straight into a pile.
0: Darkwort. I thought maybe Larkin because he's got the legs.
2: No, running back's a different position nowadays. You gotta be able to like break tackles. You gotta be able to find the seams. Burt's a good one, but I don't think his back is is built for running back right now. Raymond as the running back? Possibly. I'm thinking a wild card Heronic. He's got that chaotic energy to him and he yeah. doesn't back down from anything. He has two point eight yards per carry energy to him. It's like that. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's your um uh, your short yardage back.
1: Yeah. You're bell cow on a team whose bell cow is into like a prime Le'Veon bell or something. <laughs> ben Height says, what's more likely to happen? A Red Wings player wearing the number 91 or another player on any team in the league wearing 99? Well, by rule, the 91, but...
2: Yeah, ninety-nine's
1: retired league-wide. It literally can't happen. I don't think either will happen. Uh, Antonio Gracia says, at what point do we start thinking the only reason special teams have been somewhat better this season is because of the talent and not because of the systems? This was a pretty glaring issue during the game against Montreal and I'm starting to get annoyed at Tenge. Going 0 for 7 on the power play is pretty inexcusable. Well, for the PK, you can see the real difference. Like for the PK, you can see how they play more aggressively, push the points, press on the puck and make them make mistakes and really don't play passively like they used to in the past. For the power play, I can actually see merit to that. You know, better players like Perron, what Perron is able to do from the left wall is very impactful and we've seen that. I don't know that you can unmarry better players in different systems because one begets the other and one will allow you to do the other. It doesn't matter how good your system is. If you have me, Brad, Evan out on your power play, the power play is going to be shit as opposed to three NHL players. But I think it has a long way to go. You're not wrong. Like, 0 for 7 sucks and it's not the first time we've seen the power play stink this year.
2: For better or worse, you decide the power play structure is very different than it was last year. They are deploying a very different strategy. They're utilizing the net front far different than they were last year. The, the net front's far more involved below the goal line with the puck and, and trying to get the puck to the bumper. They're looking for that low to high cross ice pass a lot more. They're looking for that low to bumper a lot more. Um, they basically try and... It's almost like an overload, but it's more of a triangle setup, but it that is very different than what they were doing last year.
1: Burr Timsey says, do you guys think teams would ever have a goalie reserved uh, who's just a shootout specialist? Like relief pictures in baseball, is this a terrible idea? I was thinking this while watching Huso be so solid during the game and then look real out of place in that shootout.
2: It's happened before where teams pulled a goalie for a shootout, not great results.
1: Goalies generally need to be warmed up. It's such a coin flip. Like, unless you have a goalie who's really devastatingly consistently bad, and I know there's a point in Jimmy Howard's career where you can count on him letting in two or three every time. Like, there's a stretch there where he absolutely sucked and he sucked in his form, but he improved. It's something that a, goal, a good goalie can improve on. So, only carrying two goalies each game, like, it doesn't really make s- It might happen to be that your backup is a, a shootout specialist, but that's more of a coincidence because they'll also need to play like 30 games that year if your team is worth anything. And let's say one more here, one or two more here. Weeb Wheel Podcast. (laughs) Always gets me. Brad mentioned, um, and this is paraphrasing, this year is the last year the Wings can sell at the deadline and not be lambasted for it. I know it's a sliding scale, but ballpark, how many points out of a playoff spot we would have to be for trading, let's say, a 70-point pace Kubelik to be acceptable? And does it change based on the pick versus prospect? Example, Kubelik for a solid bottom six center prospect or second pair left shot D prospect?
2: So that right there is not enough value for Kubelik straight up. It's not. He's proven to be a capable top six forward, and those are very valuable. And he he himself is not that old. I'll I'll state this with the assumption that whatever the trade is, the return's fair value. Just so we get that out of the way. I think for Eisman to do it, and I think the trade deadline's like late February, early March, they would have to be at least seven to eight points out, I would think. That that feels like the number where teams at that point can just punt because they know it's not happening. I think anything five or less, you're still battling yeah. for a playoff spot. Now, there's circumstance, right? If it's a real logjam and the Red Wings are only five points out, but there's three teams between them and the the final spot, that might shift perception. They could be six points out, but they are the number nine team. Mm-hmm. That could also shift perception. So there's a little more nuance to it, but like that six, seven, eight range is, I think, where it's likely,
0: and there may not even be an offer that materializes that makes it worth trading. So right, you, yeah. we could they could sit there and be three points out and they make a trade, and then sell someone off for assets.
2: Yeah, like they if, could
0: be nine points out and not do anything. Um, it's impossible to really know.
2: Yeah, because I'm a believer that unless you're a true cup contender, you should be considering something. I don't care if the Red Wings are in the seventh playoff seed, you know, lining up for a matchup with Boston or Tampa Bay in the first round. Yeah, there's value to that first round exit, but it's going to be a first round exit in all likelihood anyway. Even if you pull up the off off the upset, you're not doing that four times. You know, if the Red Wings are sitting in the eighth seed and the Leafs and Bertuzzi's having a good season and the Leafs come along and offer their first in Matthew Nyes, are you really going to say no? Yeah, like, that's context matters, yeah. right?
1: It's all a lot of uh, ifs and buts, which is what hockey is made of. Ask Dylan Larkin. Merrick says, hey guys, first time commenter. Merrick, thank you so much for your support, and thanks for joining in the fun. Says, just checked the league counting stats and saw that McDavid is still above two points per game, and it just feels like when Thanos cut the infinity stones. <laughs> Wonder if we'll ever get to see talent like that in Detroit. Well, you did for a while, actually. You had uh, Steve Eiserman, and I understand relative to uh, Mario and and Wayne, it's different. I don't think Steve, like you compare how they performed in their eras. I think McDavid will finish his career higher up on that list, uh, but the Red Wings had their spoils for sure.
2: They've had elite, elite players. They've never had a McDavid because I think that like if you go era by era, the McDavid of Eiserman's era... Was Gretzky. Was Wayne,
1: or Mo- you can make a case for Mario at points. But
2: it was it was Wayne. Yeah. You know, the closest the Red Wings probably legitimately have had to a McDavid was Gordy. Because there was a significant stretch where Gordy yeah. was the best player on the planet. I don't think we could ever truly say Eisman was the best while he was playing. He was close, really damn close for a bunch of years. But he was never the guy. McDavid is so much better than everybody right now. It's comical. He's on pace for 82 goals. Like, and we're not that just early in the season. Just one goal a game. What, a, what, a, <laughs> what bum. a bum. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, it's not a knock on Stevie or anybody who's played for the Red Wings. I just, you know how you can't see the forest through the trees and, mm-hmm. and time. I don't think we really appreciate what we're seeing with McDavid right now.
1: He is. And like, ignore comparing eras, which you have to do intrinsically anytime you talk about best player of all time, which is still Gretzky and it's not, unless you're arguing Lemieux, it's not even a debate in my mind. Ignoring that part, McDavid
2: is the best player we've ever watched play hockey. Connor McDavid is the single greatest hockey player of all time by pure talent. Yeah. Now, Gretzky is the GOAT because he was so much better than his peers. And that's how you have to compare eras. How much better were they than everybody else playing against them? In an era where a fourth line player to a first line player is not the difference, like a fourth line player to Gretzky back in the day was like saying me to Connor McDavid right now. Like it was so dramatic. That close? Connor. (laughs) Yeah. Connor is in an era where every athlete is in freak physical condition, can skate, stick handle shoot. And he is still hands down. The best player in the world is insane.
1: All right. We're going to wrap up this episode of the winged wheel podcast. We'd like to thank all of you for tuning in. We're going to be back with you on Sunday to cover the Rangers in the uh, LA Kings game, as well as anything that happens between now and then, um, appreciate everyone listening listeners. New and old means the world to us. Uh, All of our our patrons, our name level sponsors are on Patreon. Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefur, Armchair GM slash Genius, Nick Perks, Terry Driver, for the number 69, Crying Ryan, Hannah's Banana Slam and Jamathon, Matthew M. Rice, Croner's Left Knee, Brandon M., Carl, Brutina Nanoluski, Chimmy, Chris Ball, Chris P., Citizen High Five, Connor Scovey, Coyote Season Tickets in Tempe, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, Elite Offensive Defenseman, Ben Sherratt, Give Blood Fight Probert, Hassam Al kassem Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Calen Wood, Kevin James, King Tone, Marcus, Matt McKay, Nadelkovich, goalie number one, Nicholas Fritz, R. A. Ryan Hanna, Ryan Hanna, the unshowered, Ryan Hubbard, Scott Martin, the podcasting coach. <laughs> wor- wor- how do you pronounce it? Worcester sauce? Worcestershire? It's not Worcestershire, but Worcester Sauce. Damn you, Arjun. Zachary Rogers, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army. Sam Bankson, number one Detroit Red Guys fan. Adam, I wish I could finish like Ernie. Antonio Gracias, Babe Landiscog, Ben Barron, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, Connor Leighton, Darren Fick, Dave W Dave W, Philip Zadiz Nuts, Heil have an order of a large fries and a pizza with two eyes also maybe a win. Ronix Handlebar, James Laporte, Jeremiah Dobo, JM Rapsey, John Evans, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Linda, Logan Burgos, Matt Keeler. Uh, Linda Hull, sorry. Matt Keeler, Matt S., Loyal Soldier, the Cheesebag Army, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, Mr. Munchma Q, O Ophelia, Papa Woody, Puce on the Loose, and Thick Rick as well as Aaron Hudson. Thank you all so very much. We'll talk to you on Sunday.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at wingedwheelpod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna, WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.